Hello, I'm Jo Flanagan and I'm the CEO of Women's Health Tasmania. Welcome to an episode of She's Out There, a podcast series on women's health. This podcast is good for any woman in Australia, but it's really helpful if you live in Tasmania. There are resources to go with today's podcast available on our website. So I'm sitting here in the work car and um, we're recording the podcast there because we can't afford a recording studio, but the car does very well. And we're joined by Dr. Ruby Grant, who's a lecturer in sociology at UTAS, and she's here to talk to us about LGBTQ women and sexual and reproductive health. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome, Ruby, and welcome to our salubrious sound studio. It's very comfortable in here. <laughs> yeah. So this is a bit of an area of expertise for you, isn't it? Sexual and reproductive health yeah. and LGBT women. Yeah. So I actually started my PhD at the University of Tasmania in 2015. And when I started, I was going to just be looking at sexual uh, sexual health for young women generally. Um, you know, how do young women think about um, what safe sex is? How do they negotiate that? And how do new kinds of technologies like social media in- impact those kinds of things? But what I found when I started reading a whole bunch of stuff around this was that there's actually not a lot about um, bisexual, lesbian, bisexual and queer women um, in that discussion. And I thought that would be really interesting to find out more about young queer women's sexual and reproductive health. Okay, well let, let's start with the basics. <laughs> um, can you explain the words to us? So um, we've got LGBTQ. Yes possibly plus and <laughs> yeah. all of these embrace women so can you step us through that yeah so this is um, why I really love this kind of research and just love talking about um, this area just because it's so interesting gender and sexuality are, are really complicated topics and everybody has their own experiences of, of what those are in their own life and, and their own kind of words to describe um, people's identities so um, you're probably familiar with um, L is for, for lesbians, so these are women who are attracted to other women. Um, G is, is for gay, so mostly gay men, but that can also, some women use the term gay to describe their, relation, their relationships or their, their sexuality, um, their attraction to other women as well. The main work that I do focuses on um, the B and the Q, really, which is the bisexual or queer. Um, so bisexuality is um, quite a broad area that looks at, um, I guess, maybe a really a common way of understanding it is being um, being attracted to um, your own gender and other genders. So a really common thing that we see maybe is um, yeah, being attracted to men and women as well, so both. Um, but more and more people are you know, trying to recognise that gender is a lot more complicated than just being... Um, man or woman, male, female. There are people who have diverse gender experiences and expressions. So a lot of people now might refer to bisexuality as being attracted to um, your own gender and other genders. Okay. And um, queer? So queer is a, has a big, long, complicated history. And there are lots of reasons why many people might not like the term queer and lots of pe- reasons why some people do actively choose to use it. So you might have heard queer being referred used as a um, as a bad word, as a, as a slur towards, um, usually towards gay people. Um, and that, yeah, definitely was the case for a long time. But a lot of people in the, um, in the gay community tried to, or have decided to reclaim that word. So to take it back and to use it in a positive way to describe themselves. So it also comes from a kind of area of, of activism and thought that's trying to break down barriers and um, 
binaries around sex and gender. And so to just think about uh, sexuality and gender as being fluid and I guess it's just that it's complicated. (laughs) And that's kind of what queer tries to capture. It's, yeah, it's the kind of fluid or changing or kind of weird ways of of experiencing gender and sexuality. So what's binary? That's another word. Yeah, yeah. I guess and I've actually just read a really wonderful book called Life Isn't Binary by Meg John Barker and Alex Ian Tarfey. And yeah, a lot of the way we think about the world is in binaries. So yeah, we think about, you know, men and women um, being homosexual or heterosexual. Um, And so I guess bisexuality too is is really kind of straddling that binary of, yeah, we assume people are attracted to um, either their own gender or other genders. But yeah, so bisexuality really complicates that because there, yeah, lots of people are attracted to multiple genders it's not just one or the other it's both and often there's a there's a sense that for bisexual people that yeah that it's two that there are two genders which um yeah we think increasingly isn't necessarily the case but also that there's like a sense of a 50 50 split that you are um equally attracted to men and women um or maybe you've had you know equal amounts of um relationships or sex with men and women but for a lot of people, it's not like that at all. It's a really, you know, the percentages of how attracted they are to different genders change across their life um, and in different contexts for different reasons. And yeah, and their relationships might not reflect that either, but that doesn't make them any more or less bisexual. Okay. Can I just ask about queer? Because queer, you know, you're saying how it was such a mean word. When I was at school, it was mm. a really mean word. And, and people have made such an effort to make it their own word and a positive yeah. word. But is that something, is that like the N-word? You know, African-Americans mm. use the N-word to each other, but it wouldn't be at all appropriate for a white person to use yeah. the word. It would be very offensive. So for someone who's not LGBT, is it all right to use queer as a word? Um, I guess lots of people have different feelings about this. Um, I guess... This advice I give to everybody, I mean, I do work with healthcare practitioners as well and, and students that I teach, is that always be guided by the language of the people around you. So um, if if you uh, have a whole bunch of gay and lesbian friends and they're like, I absolutely do not like that word and I don't like to hear it, maybe don't use that word to refer to gay and lesbian people. But, you know, if you have a lot of friends who, you know, they say this is the way that I um, I describe myself, and, uh, you know, I'm part of the queer community, um, maybe that might be a way that in that context it might be appropriate for you to use that word as well. But I guess it's always, yeah, always important to ask and always important to be aware of context or what's going on. Okay. And I think there's one last one I wanted to ask Mm. you about, which is um, pansexual which it sounds like a new one. I haven't, only came across it recently. Yeah, I think. so pansexual is not being attracted to <laughs> to crockery. It is um, pansexual, pan meaning, um, you know, all or multiple, is a different way of understanding bisexuality. I guess it comes under the same kind of umbrella. And a lot of people describe it as being attracted to people um, regardless of gender. So people might say that, you know, when they fall in love with somebody, gender isn't something that they think about. They fall in love with the person, um, you know, aspects of their um, of their personality, things like that is what's attracted to them to that person. And it's gender isn't something that factors into that. So that means that, yeah, they can, you know, they might um, be attracted to a man or a woman or a trans man, trans woman, lots of different kinds of people. 
Um, yeah, so some a lot of bisexual people might be happy to use pan as well. Um, but yeah, there are different kinds of reasons why people might use different terms. So I guess I could summarise our conversation <laughs> by saying it's diverse, isn't it? Yeah, There's lots of yeah. diverse genders and ways of describing it. And, um, but it's important to people, isn't it, that, that mm. they feel that they're described in a way that feels respectful to yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think that's that's why it's a really interesting and wonderful area. And when people do say that, oh, it's all too complicated, you know, this you know this LGBT alph- alphabet soup, it's getting too complicated. But um, I think it's yeah, it, it it really captures the wonderful diversity of experiences that there are. And yeah, that's really it's really interesting. And I think it's great to try and hear about people's different experiences and. So that's what you've been doing. You've been doing research I in this have. area. Can you tell us a bit about your research? Yes, yeah, so I've done, I guess my, my PhD work was where this all started. And I interviewed um, 15 young women and non-binary people, most, but mostly women who identify as bisexual or, or pansexual or queer, um, about their understandings of their identity and then how that might shape their experiences of sexual health and their access to healthcare in Tasmania. And what did you learn? <laughs> so I learned a lot of things. Um, some really interesting stuff about you know, why people use certain words. But um, yeah, a real sense, I guess my, one of my favourite findings from the work was that, um, so for many of these young women, so these were women yeah, between the ages of 19 and 26 um, who had grown up in Tasmania. Yeah, a lot of them um, had talked about, so yeah, going through school, you know, sex education that we received was not very good. Um, but we, but we did learn a lot about, you know, what safe sex means for men um, when you're having sex with men. So, you know, you've got to use a condom, maybe, maybe have the contraceptive pill, um, you know, all kinds of things like that. They were very across it. And when I asked them, you know, what do you do to promote or to make sure that, yeah, you, that you're having safe sex? They're like, yes, I always do this, 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 this. Um, you know, I'm all about it. I'm all across it. I'm getting my regular sexual health checks and everything's good. Then when I said, okay, so what about now with your relationships or, or the sex you've had with women? How has that been? They've just been, they were really surprisingly like, oh, I don't know, haven't really thought much about it, never talked about that stuff. And I think that's, that's really interesting. These same people who kind of set themselves up as being very, um, yeah, very knowledgeable, very experienced, very happy and to be assertive um, with their sexual partners. With women, they were, yeah, they, find, they found this really hard to talk about. So what's going on there, do you think? Like, that mm. women, they, women don't feel like there's a need for... Maybe not so much a need, but there's a sense that, I mean, I talk about this thing called sexual scripts. We have, um, we actually learn how to behave sexually and we, um, there are kinds of messages and almost, yeah, scripts, like patterns of behaviour that we learn. Um, maybe we pick them up from movies or from media or the way we see other people relate um, and a lot of those are heterosexuals, very clear-cut kind of uh, rules for behaviour that people can follow. And, yeah, people talk about that a lot. We see it played out in movies. We see it played out on TV. Um, it's, yeah, something people are very familiar with. But then when it comes, we don't really see those same kind of scripts for relationships between women. And that can, so then it can be really hard how, how, to, how this stuff kind of plays out. Like, how do you talk about um, safe sex with a, with a female partner. Um, is, is it necessary? There's a lot of um, misconceptions and a lot of misunderstanding about how to or whether um, these kinds of things should happen. And what would you think is the big safety issue for women having sex with women? I mean, yeah, there's a real myths around um, 
that women, you know, uh, going way, going back to kind of like the AIDS era, women are um, lesbians are immune to various STIs, which is not the case at all. But I think the real safety issues um, are in around that kind of emotional safety stuff. There's not enough emphasis on um, healthy relationships between between women, and talking about things like consent and and um, yeah, making sure that everybody is is on board and happy to be doing what what they're doing. I think enthusiastic consent yeah, that's, that's right what we want, isn't it yeah because <laughs> yeah it was actually really sad there were quite a few people who said that they were in abusive relationships with other women um, maybe even women who were older than them but because maybe they weren't out to their families or they um, yeah there was a lot of stigma around that relationship um, or not even recognizing that relationship as a relationship when things started to maybe get into the sort of you know abusive territory um, these young women didn't know where to turn to for help because it was seen, yeah, this wasn't something they could even talk about as a relationship, which is really, 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 yeah, that was some of the hardest stuff to hear in, in my research. Young women, if you're listening to this podcast <laughs> and you're in this situation, do get in touch with Women's Health Tasmania. We've got, um, you know, staff who are well-versed in talking to women about women's health issues so, and um, counselling services available. Did you talk to the women in your research about their experiences of accessing health services? Yes, yes, a lot. What did they tell you? It was a big part of the work to look at how, um, so we, you know, I did a, we talked about how they understand themselves and their identity, how they sort of, um, yeah, how they, what they learnt about sex, particularly at school and as young people, and their experiences of negotiating safe sex. But then, okay, so what happens then when, you know, maybe you've got a sexual health issue that you want to talk to a, a doctor about? What happens then when you go into the doctor's office? And, yeah, there was some really interesting experiences of um, particularly biphobia. So you might be familiar with homophobia, which is discrimination against gay and lesbian people. But, yeah, biphobia is discrimination against bisexual people. Um, and, yeah, there was a lot of misunderstanding and um maybe yeah outright stigma from doctors towards young women as as bisexual um yeah so a lot of assumptions that if a young woman came into the doctor and said you know i've I've had um you know i've had sex with men and with women you know i've had this many partners yeah there was a real kind of judgment from doctors sometimes and um or or dismissing of their identities um on the basis of how many partners that they'd had and the genders of those partners so those kinds of things made made a lot of people uncomfortable and then quite unlikely to want to go back to those doctors or to go back to the doctor at all, which was real concern considering some of the issues that, um, yeah, not not just sexual health issues, but also mental health um, needs of this particular group of people. So did the women give you examples of good practice, what doctors had done that they felt had worked for them yeah so i guess a lot of people just want maybe this is regardless of your if your sexuality people people want doctors who are going to be non-judgmental who are happy to sit and really listen to your experience and yeah to be um, willing to ask questions and to admit that if there's something that they don't know that they're happy to yeah they want to they'll look into that for you and they'll work with you together to to you know get to the point that you want to get to um, in terms of taking sexual health histories, people really liked it when there was a recognition or that um, the doctors weren't making assumptions about who their identity or their behaviour. So, yeah, asking things, just to, same questions to everyone, you know, have you had sex with men, women, both, other genders? Those kinds of things made people really, really happy, particularly if they... Um, so I had quite a few women who would were um, currently in a relationship with men or with a man and um, 
but they had had past sexual experiences with women or relationships with women. And being able to um, to disclose that in a way that didn't seem um, daunting, it was just something that was a regular sexual health history check, um, that made people feel really comfortable and, and, and seen as well, which was great. Yeah. And did you hear stories where um, things were sl- missed? Like, did the women have stories for you about encounters with doctors where things had gone wrong? Mm, yeah. Um, interestingly, a lot of the stuff where things went wrong actually not, maybe not always were about their sexuality, but were just about young women's sexuality in general. So, yeah, almost like shaming, whether that be um, very explicitly or, you know, really upfront or kind of sort of subtly or implicitly, um, yeah, making judgments about their sexual behaviour. So I had one woman say that, um, yeah, she had just gone in for some antibiotics that she needed for um, whatever it was that she had. She needed antibiotics. And then the doctor said, oh, so you're on the pill? And she said, yes, I am. And, you know, I've been on that for years, all good. And the doctor was like, yep, so you'll need to keep your legs together. (laughs) And so those kinds of little things are really horrible <laughs> and yeah she was like I, I, I did not go back to that doctor ever again and I've told all my friends that this person is not somebody you should go to and yeah those kinds of things then made people be like well if they weren't happy about me being sexually active as a young woman generally how are they going to be when I tell them that um, you know I'm queer or I'm pansexual it's just not going to be a good time so yeah there's a lot of the stuff is um, yeah some really negative experiences in those kinds of ways um, not so much around just bisexuality. It was just generally a kind of misunderstanding, uh, a lack of understanding about it as something that is real. Yeah, just, just like the use of gendered language made people really uncomfortable. So yeah, saying like, you know, do you have a boyfriend or do you have a husband is, yeah, assume, making an assumption about the gender of somebody's partner. Um, even if the person would say then, yes, I do, because I do at the time. That would then be like, well, but if I did have a, um, a partner who was a woman, that might be really uncomfortable for me. So those kinds of things were red flags for people as well. So um, how do young, well, any LGBT women find the right GP for themselves? If, There's mm. a lot of, um, I mean, yeah, obviously just sort of trial and error, but there is a lot of resources out there, um, whether that just be within community. Um, I see I'm a member of lots of um, LGBT um, Facebook groups where people will be sharing. Yeah, people always share like, you know, hey, does anyone know a good doctor who's, you know, cool with me being a lesbian or who can provide me with good maybe mental health care as a, as a bisexual woman? And yeah, so drawing on those kinds of community resources is really great. But there's also it's like services like um, like working it out have they have lists of of providers that are um, you know the community know are um, are good such as Women's Health <laughs> Tasmania as well um, yeah so those are some yeah there are some official and then also non non official I guess channels to find out who's a good person to go to yeah that's um, word of mouth is a very powerful yeah. thing isn't it you know? <laughs> that's right yeah so do do things like you know rainbow stickers and in, in health practices does that help people mm, yeah definitely a lot of you know lots of research my, my own research included does show that people people really like to see those visual indicators of, of that this is an inclusive service um yeah and the people i talked to said that even if they um yeah for people who are bisexual who are in relationships with men um so even if they seem like they're straight to a lot of people seeing those kind of indicators uh yeah that was something that was really like, oh, that place might get me if I go there and that's going to be really nice. 
but it is a really important point to make that that's not enough like I have I've spoken to doctors um, who work in in clinics who yeah they put they're like yep we do a great job we've got the poster up on the wall we've got the sticker on the door done but it's actually a lot more than that people um when they go into those services, yes, they want to see that there's visual indicators, that that place is going to be inclusive, but that needs to then follow through in the service that they provide. So going back to those things we were talking about, about um, trying not to use really gendered language if a person's not comfortable with that or, yeah, open, making not making assumptions or judgments about people's identity or their behaviour. Um, yeah, willing to work with people, or ask, ask questions if they're not sure and... Yeah, that, that kind of stuff in the interaction with the doctors or other kind of health professionals is really important as well, much more than just just having a sticker on the door, really. We've been learning a lot about um, the fact that GPs have different areas of interest and mm. they'll pursue those um, and become develop greater expertise in certain areas. And so I guess, you know, if this is an area that's important to you, it's quite legitimate to look around for the GP who has this as an area of interest mm, and, yeah, yeah. and contacting a service like Working It Out to find out who those doctors might be would be a good strategy. Mm, yeah, definitely. I know that they have a list a list of doctors that do and it is an area that um, yeah, there needs to be more and more research and more support for professionals as well because we do see some of the training can be lacking. But, yeah, it's really great to see that there are some doctors all over Tasmania who are doing amazing work trying to, yeah, trying to improve their work and, and to help serve the needs of this particular community. So just recently I've been meeting some older women who are lesbians who've moved here as part of this tree change generation, <laughs> moving down from the mainland into rural Tasmania. And, um, you know, that presents particular challenges you know lovely things but also challenges for them so, mm. and it's got me thinking about the experience of being in the uh, LGBT community in rural Tasmania so is that mm. something you've explored? Yeah quite a bit I mean I myself grew up in a in a pretty regional area and so this is an, um, a, a topic that's really close to my heart I guess like growing up um, in in Molesworth <laughs> um, there was a real kind of not yeah not homophobic necessarily but particularly around bi bisexual people and lesbians a real anti really anti-lesbian sentiments quite a bit as a as a young girl which was really confronting and I look back on that um I'm not lesbian but I look on, look back on that and being like it, being in that environment would be a really difficult uh would be a really difficult time growing up in that environment and yeah, so those kinds of things do shape um, the experience for people who have who've always lived there, but particularly for people moving into areas, maybe if they're coming from big cities, yeah, people are often shocked that maybe this, the same kind of services might not be available. And that's really different throughout Tasmania too. So a lot of the women I interviewed for my research were from Hobart, but I did interview quite a few women from, um, from Launceston as well. And the folks in Launceston had a real... Yeah, they said that there aren't very many services in our local area that would cater to some of these more specialised health needs. And so, yeah, some of us have to drive all the way to Hobart to get these services, which is, yeah, really full on. But then the people in Hobart were very much like, even here we feel like we can't access the same kinds of stuff that we would, you know, ideally like, you know, specialist gender services like they have in places like Melbourne. So, yeah, it's all relative, I guess, but Tasmania as a whole faces these kinds of issues. 
But I, as well, there's a, I think there's an important. It's important to focus too on the on the positive aspects of living in a place like Tasmania. The LGBT community in Tasmania is really really vibrant and really close knit, and yeah, there's a real sense of support. Um, I guess camaraderie um, in the community, and that's a that's a real source of of, of resilience for people that can impact on health in a positive way as well. And vibrant in rural areas too. Definitely. You know, really strong networks. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's really, really good to see. So I guess I, I, in the work that I do, I really try and, um, yeah, try and challenge that idea that being, you know, being in a rural area and being gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender is, um, you know, is categorically or, you know, entirely going to be a bad time. That's really not the case. But we do need to know, to keep fighting for, um, yeah, for improved access to services and things like that because there are still issues that people face in those areas. So I guess the message is if you're in a rural and regional area and you're feeling alone, um, do reach out to you know, these groups and, and um, through Facebook or through services and, um, and see what's out there. And there will be a list of resources and services on our website. Yeah.